411 Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. 411 Since the tragic killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, some amazing things have happened. Protests. Uh, with people of mixed races holding up Black Lives Matter signs. We've even seen police officers sometimes joining protesters. And there has been legislation passed, police reform legislation in the House of Representatives. That's just a start. Hello, everyone. This is the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. This is actually part two of a podcast dealing with the immediate impact stemming from the killing of George Floyd and the potential future impact. Two guests have agreed to come back or stay with me, and that being former U.S. Attorney James Santel, now in private practice, and Attorney Lynette McNeely, and she is the chair of Legal Redress for the NAACP, Wisconsin State Conference of Branches. Thank you both for agreeing to part two. Thank you for having us. Sure thing. We covered a lot in part one, but we had so much more to cover. So it just made sense to have a part two. We talked a lot about uh, George Floyd, Floyd and the killing of him on May 25th and how that impact, I guess, all of us. Um, kind of our thinking about justice, equality, our country. So now we have all the protests, and they go on on a daily basis with a lot of people um, of all ages and races. And I was thinking back to protests within our country, and it really resonated with me because I just completed uh, an audiobook narration that I'm, I, I was working on, and it was, it's called Mercy Extended by Linda Oberbrunner. In it, she talks about participating in protests in the 60s dealing with the housing issue in Milwaukee. And it was just odd that I was reading about this and all of this was taking place. But you think about then, and you had certain leaders, Bell Phillips, uh, Father Grappi come to mind, and you think about what we have now. And you can pick out a few people, key people, the names keep coming back, but not necessarily a prominent leader. But I'm wondering, is that necessary? Um, Do you need that? Do you need, do the protesters need to outline specific things that they want beyond you know, justice, equality, um, or do they continue to protest on a daily basis, make awareness that something has to be done, and hope that the leaders, the legislators, will come up with viable solutions? You, you get where I'm coming from? Where, what's the best method here? i say both and, you know. Um, Black Lives Matter, uh, I think, was an organization that started around 2015, is that correct? Right. In Los Angeles. 
And they were a group of women who said, you know what? We're sick of seeing uh, our individuals who look like our children getting killed. We need to do something about it. They rose, they rose up and empowered others. And the way they've set up the organization, from what I understand, it's, it's a decentralized organization. So there's no, unlike, unlike the NAACP, we have our national office and our satellite offices. Black Lives Matter is decentralized. Whoever wants to um, push, put forth the um, effort, get together and make it happen. More like a and grassroots organization. Yeah. Total grassroots, but yeah. organic. So whoever feels the need to develop this issue or bring it out, go for it. And I thought that was a very refreshing approach to making change. Um, there are some, there's some benefits to that we've seen. You have uh, people in Waukesha taking up the initiative. You have people in Menominee Falls and they don't have to wait for the approval of uh, anyone. They just need to have the passion. So it works in that regard. But it is nice to have hierarchy too, because I understand to your point, who do you talk to to resolve? You know, but I think with this instance, with this protest situation today, I'm seeing um, probably for the first time in a long time, this belief that we are the people, you know, in order to make a, a, a more perfect union, we need to be together and work together and contribute. It's not about getting your permission. It's not about talking to you about it either. It's about an issue that we're joined on and we're both in, we're passionate about and, and we have a right to speak up as Americans about something that we know to be wrong. And that's what's happening under this movement. And that's refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts, Jim? Absolutely. You will not be a bit surprised to hear me say that I agree completely with Lynette in this this notion that there's a combination, right, of all kinds of things, firing on big ticket issues, and then also getting into the grassroots to do the specific work. And to, to that, I would add, and I think it is responsive to your question, the notion that we do not need more study commissions, we don't need more committees, we don't need more um, analyses that take five and six months or even five and six years because we've done that. And just like in the area of gun violence, we know what works. We apply it in those states that have adopted six or seven basic policies. They reduce gun violence. In this area also when it comes to policing and racial sensitivity and engagement of the community, we know what works in those areas because there are cities in America where with imperfect results, a lot of these things have been applied. And so you, again, you will not be surprised to hear me say that I'm a big fan of something called uh, President Barack Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing together in the wake of Ferguson and said, we've got to do something. Again, going back to it in the, the earlier program, this notion of, of, you know, this is not new to us. He sat people down, he, yes, brought in police, but also brought in community leaders, uh, private farmers, uh, uh, academics, everybody involved in this and said, what do we do with this? And they came back five or six months later. And yes, they produced a 100-page document which sounds very government-like, I know, but they also produced a 50-page uh, implementation piece. And if you go to it, if you can bear with me, you know, the categories of it alone capsulize, I think, what gets to your question, Lynette's comments also, which is broad picture issues and then boiled down to specific things that are available to access. And so Barack Obama's task force talked about um, building trust and legitimacy, right? That's number one. Policy and oversight on the street, the kinds of things we've talked about. Technology and social media, Lynette mentioned that in the, in the 
uh, previous program, community policing and crime reduction, um, training and education, and then officer wellness and, and, and safety, also part of this. And inside of those broad categories, we are not our 59 different, very specific things at work. And so you can see us on any one of those broad protest issues and find a way to implement it legislatively mm-hmm. with your local aldermen and, and women, uh, your, your local alders, as well, your mayor, your police chief. It is there, it's accessible, and we can do it with just as much urgency as all the protesters are advocating for. And, and that's the exciting part of this in the midst of great tragedy and in the, in the wake of this horrific, these horrific events. It's accessible to us, and we can make this happen as quickly as the House of Representatives passed legislation and as quickly as our governor in the state of Wisconsin is identifying mechanisms. We can make things happen. It's not going to happen overnight in terms of implementation. It does take a while. That's the nature of government. That's the nature of law enforcement and the nature of human, human nature. Um, but we can get to these points fairly immediately. And we, to your question, uh, Beverly, we can bring those big protest issues into specific implementation. It will make a change on the streets of America. Very good. Very good. Now, you refer to the House of Representatives, and I had mentioned that, too. They passed this the bill, um, but it stuck. I mean, the House passed it. The Senate has a version of their bill that has gone nowhere. Um, so we applaud the House, but we're still waiting. Um it's like, can we get anything done? That is the frustration. Yeah, yeah. Jim explained that you know we don't need enough. You know, the process, the bureaucracy has been the holdup. Um, yeah. People are looking for more immediate results. So maybe that is another uh, solution that might come through the pipe. I know there's ways to get some, certain legislation passed, whether it be through executive order or some other type of quick, quicker fix. But I think in Wisconsin, we're seeing a level of hostility <laughs> with executive orders. Uh, um, so we don't know how well that would work today. But we do have the light of the vote. And that's coming up in November. And we encourage everyone out there who's not registered to vote to get registered. You can contact us at the NAACP, any one of our branches, whether it's Milwaukee, Waukesha, Beloit, Racine, uh, Kenosha. Madison, Dane County, uh, we're here for you. And there's several other organizations like ACLU and the Women's Voters League. And there's, we're out here. We can help you get registered. And if you are registered, register someone else, at least one other person in your life. Uh, try to find that person who's not and get them registered before November so we can vote Wisconsin back to where it needs to be, vote uh, the country back to where we believe it should be too. And we can start doing good work again. Do you think people will be motivated to vote? I mean, my thought initially is yes, but, you know, I don't know. You've got, and you were talking about these organizations. You know, these organizations were able to go out into the community and, you know, get the get out the vote campaigns and register people to vote with COVID-19, that kind of curtails a lot of that kind of activity. Um, what do you think the impact will be? You know, following up on Lynette's good words here, I, I think she's onto something that's huge and I do not in any way mean to diminish the significance of protests and advocacy under the First Amendment. 
but voting is the key here. And if we can do civic education, explaining the connection between your protest um, in Sherman Park this afternoon or in downtown Milwaukee or in, in Waukesha or any place around the state of Wisconsin or in the nation, um, how do you get that done in the end? The single most important thing you can do is vote in August, vote in, vote in November. And one of the things that I'm always surprised at, I suspect the two of you are as well, is the extent to which people don't understand that connection. We're just also of a time when our Supreme Court every June is issuing very significant opinions. Perhaps as soon as, depending upon uh, when, when this airs, they may have already issued these opinions, but they're coming out right now. And people ask, well, gee, I'm opposed to that. Well, how can I change the Supreme Court? And people say, well, I can't. The answer is yes. Where do Supreme Court justices come from? Ultimately, they come from voting. Why? Because Supreme Court justices are appointed by a president who is publicly elected. Where does an attorney general come from? Where do U.S. attorneys come from? They come from voting by virtue of, again, voting in a president. Where, If you are serious about moving the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act from the House to the Senate and addressing those issues there, you need to vote. Uh, we don't have a Senate uh, election here in Wisconsin this time around. You need to vote to get that accomplished. And so I think Lynette's point is the single most important thing perhaps we can convey today, which is looking forward, the single most important compelling thing you can do is register and vote. And candidly, I will be so emphatic about this, this is going to sound a bit harsh. If you are out there today um, and you are protesting and you are not registered and you're eligible and you're not registered to vote, shame on you. Um, and if you do not vote in November and things do not go your way, I don't believe you've got, you, you don't <laughs> give up the government right, but your credibility with me is going to diminish dramatically. Vote, right? And, and exercise that right. That's how you change all of this. Right. And, and to, to just you know, piggyback on that, um, run for office. If you don't like, my dad used to always tell me, you know, quit your complaining. If you don't like the way people are doing something, you join them and you change it. And I think that's going to be the message uh, coming up. And granted, you know, uh, the signatures are already in, I think as of um, May 31st, for those who are looking to run for office for the August election, is it? Or maybe even November, August, prim is there a primary in August? I believe there is. Yeah. So um, you might be a little late, but there's always next year you can regroup. You have an audience, you have fellow protesters, potentially, and that might be a great support network to get you started. But we need to get these young people running for office and participating in policy development and making the change that they're fighting for. Let's talk about policy development and uh, police reform. I was looking at like the House bill. It covers uh, doing away with check, cho uh, choke holes and similar maneuvers. It talks about altering the qualified immunity, which we talked about in part one. Um, this allowing victims of police brutality to seek damages. Um, it calls for uh, making it easier to prosecute police officers for misconduct. Um, it calls for banning no-knock warrants um, in federal drug cases. It calls for an end to racial bias in policing. On the state level, the governor on Juneteenth, he came out with a proposal. It establishes a statewide use of force standards. It bans, or yeah, it proposes that, and it bans police chokeholds and no-knock um, searches. So those things are out there legislatively. What are some other things that you see? I, I know you guys are 
proponent of community policing, bridging that relationship between the neighborhood and the police. Um, what does that look like? I'll, I'll take, take the first stab at that, and I, I know that Lynette will also uh, add her good thoughts to this as well. There are many things that we can do aside from voting. We can do them, do them right now. One of the things I'm also very proud of inside the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice, is a, is a group called the Community Relations Service. They're not litigators, they're not prosecutors. They come into communities to do conciliation, mediation, times when, whether it's the police, um, groups of people who need to sit down and talk, they're the ones who facilitate that, that sort of thing. Among the other things that they did a long time ago, when, when Nanette Haggerty, you may remember- Uh-huh, I do. You, I think, Beverly, you've been covered her um, in your wonderful tenure um, here in Milwaukee, which continues. Um, at that time, the Community Relations Service put together um, a community police relations entity, kind of exactly what you're talking about, getting people from representative agencies, including the Milwaukee chapter of the NAACP, but many others in, in all sorts of different groups in the area to sit down on a regular basis with representatives of police. Commissioned by the Department of Justice, you've got this imprimatur of the government bringing together community leaders and individuals, addressing policies, addressing uh, things even related to the Fire and Police Commission, addressing, you know, what are the needs of the community and all the, a huge, huge commission. One of the challenges is that that, that entity fell away. It fell away and, it, and I, at the risk of sounding very self-focused here at the end of my, my tenure as U.S. Attorney, I proposed the recreation of that and I, I called it the Alliance for Milwaukee's Community and uh, Police Partnership. Just another acronym. Doesn't, the name is less important than this notion of bringing people together. In all of those cities that Barack Obama's task force identified that do have, is, again, challenges, absolutely. Perfect solutions, no. But in all those cities that are moving in the right direction, every single one of them has an entity supported by the mayor, supported by the local U.S. attorney, supported by local DAs, supported by governors and, and alders and, and all the folks who are involved in this and committed to substantially by the police chiefs, that once a month, once every six weeks, whenever there is a crisis related to the community, they will get together. It's not a group of 500 people. It's probably 30 people altogether. They represent, uh, again, uh, constituencies in the population. And they sit down and they address the kinds of things that are in this legislation at the very local level. And the other thing that that does, of course, and in terms of communication, but when a crisis happens, I've already met Beverly. I've already met Lynette. It's not a matter of introducing myself to the first time. I know you. And if there's a crisis, I can jump right into it. And I've got some level of trust and confidence with you because for the past two to three to four to five to six years, I've had this engagement with you on a regular basis. Those work. Those entities work. Right. We need to enforce that, that concept and promote that concept in every city, among many other things that are out there. Right. You've got to bring the right people at the table. Let's take a break. We're going to talk more about this. Um, and I know the NAACP has some uh, ideas as well. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. My, my God. It's another sad day in America. 
painful to be introduced to George Floyd during his last breath with a cop's knee on his neck. He deserves so much more. How many black lives have to be taken for something to be done? We are not a threat. I am shaking as I talk. This has got to stop. We are sick of it. conviction. I just want us all to live. The death will not stop until the powers that be are finally held accountable. Don't look away from the truth until every one of us are free from white supremacy. The world stands with Criminalizing and killing of black and brown bodies is not new. It's as old as America. It's just getting filled more. Do you know what it feels like to be hunted? To have a new hashtag for a dead black person every single day? How does one plan a life if they aren't sure they will have a life to plan? George Floyd. His name was George Floyd. Say his name. Say his name. George Floyd. Say his name. Say their names. Once again and always, we fight for justice. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Rest in power, beautiful. Go to blacklivesmatter.com. Welcome back to the 411 Live. We were talking about uh, community relations with police, and Jim had given uh, a lot of ideas on bringing the right people at the table, basically, to kind of talk about what's going on within the community, already having that relationship. So when a crisis arises, people can come together quickly. They don't have to reintroduce themselves. They know each other. They know where they're going. They can tackle whatever it is. I also know that the NAACP um, has come up with some ideas of, of what can be done. Uh, Lynette, can you speak to that? I think it was like 13 um, right. proposals. So Yes, we have a proposal that we're introducing to our members and to the state and eventually to the leadership of the state of Wisconsin uh, for our recommendations. But, you know, we are in violent agreement with Jim that there should be a relationship uh, that gets established. You know, we're looking from our vantage point, we're looking for a fortification of our local communities, mm -hmm. a uh, reestablishment of trust. And we all know how this is done because we're human beings. We all know how we develop trust by meeting one another, by exchanging, by um, sitting next to one another, talking, uh, being over each other's homes, maybe. Those are communities are all about. But we've seen in uh, recent times, like there's a scarcity of contact, right? There's a scarcity of utilizing all members of the community. We want to bring some of that back. But to our 13 points, we were addressing those issues that came uh, as a result of the death of George Floyd. So mm -hmm. we were focusing on police changes that we believe could be implemented or implementations that could help um, mitigate some of these uh, problems we're seeing with the police community relations. So the first one was uh, requesting that we, there's a demilitarization of all municipal police departments in Wisconsin. We noticed that in this county of, of Milwaukee, there's 19, I believe, potentially different police departments that we're dealing with here. So all of those police departments need to be spoken to, and all of them should be demilitarizing. We've had a lot of engagement with the Milwaukee Police Department, which is just one out of the several. 
And uh, we want to see uh, more action in the, those other 18, potentially, um, if there are 18. I think there, there might be a few less than that. Secondly, we're looking to effectively oversee all of these municipal police departments in Wisconsin County, um, establish an independent internal affairs investigator uh, and civilian oversight board, to, James, to Jim's point, with unrestricted access to the files and documents, videos and images that are collected by these police departments. We believe that this nuance is very key uh, to not just have a commission that's overseeing one police department like Milwaukee Police Department, even though they're very large, it makes sense that they should have an oversight board. But we think there might be some value in having a countywide oversight board so that all of the activities that are happening in our area are being accounted for, analyzed, reviewed, and bad police officers, the, the rotten apples, if you will, spoiled apples, bad apples, are actually getting out of our county, getting away from you know the people that could be impacted by their behavior. With that, let, let me ask you this. Would that be one of those things where you have the board within the oversight, community oversight within each municipality and then members from those committees, you know, coming together for a county group? Right. You well, know that's I mean? a very good point. The logistics we're leaving open for, you know, the people to decide, but that'd be a very important thing to do, make sure that all individuals of uh, the 19 different counties have some buy-in mm -hmm. to the oversight and not have it be another um, small elite group of people who are making decisions for the whole. This would be an opportunity for um, civilians um, all throughout our great county to be able to get to know one another and to hear what's going on for others in different cities. Because I think that's one of the problems we're seeing, especially in Wisconsin, we are isolated. We're highly segregated in um, this area. And so what happens on Third and Locust might be completely unknown to someone who lives off of 190th and Capitol, right? Right. And um, this would be a way for people in those communities um, to potentially, well, actually, that'd be outside of Milwaukee County, but let's say 124th and Capitol, right? So that'd be a, a Wauwatosa area. Um, they might not be aware of what's happening. And I think that's maybe 90% of the battle. Like we just don't know what's going on for our brethren out there. And we're getting this momentum right now where we're listening to one another. We're seeing that there's issues that are going on with our, with our neighbors. And so let's create a formal mechanism to continue sharing, continue being aware of what's going on and making a change as a full community in Milwaukee. Um, we're also looking to require the municipal officers and all of these uh, different departments to have 80 hours of de-escalation training every year and in compliance or in accord with uh, the governor's um, Juneteenth declaration, um, the use of all no-knock warrants in Wisconsin counties be not available. I don't know if that's, is that something that happens in Wisconsin? Jim, you can speak on that. Um, and then the implementation of a statewide no-tolerance policy for the use of excessive police force. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that we're operating in parallel with them, um, but there's still little things that we would like to see changed. And the last uh, few that we have are looking at mental health resources for all municipal police officers, um, asking for training for nonviolent or um, uh, reducing the, the training for firearms and other violent tactics, um, asking for 40 hours of cultural awareness of all police in the area, and uh, 
body cameras, making all the police in the area uh, wear them and whatever they record becomes public information immediately and not information that gets uh, massaged by police departments before they're uh, administered to the public. And then provide access to data on citizen complaints and inquiries. So that all of us know, um, even if we have a small board of individuals or a civilian oversight board, we want uh, information about complaints to be available to all people in, in the area. So you know, um, as a member of um, the community, what's going on and which officers are doing what. I think that'd be very helpful. Got you. Got you. So you guys are, when you, you finalize this plan and send it off, who will ultimately get it? You will be sending it to the min different municipalities or to the government? How would that, how does plan? that work? We start with our local um, county governments mm -hmm. and see if there's something that, you know, they could partner with us on um, as far as advocating for it. We do need to do some more research on logistically how that how this might play out. There may be some legislative prohibitions on uh, what we're asking for, so we may have to tweak it in that regard. But sitting down at all levels, the state, the counties, and the cities, and to figure out a solution so that um, all citizens can feel um, that their communities are being fortified, refortified, and that there's trust. Right. So okay. you got to do it. Let's talk. And, and I, I, Go ahead. I, I just endorse that because there, there are two things packed into what Lynette just said, which I think are also worthy of, of emphasis. One is flexibility, right? Um, that in, under these broad articulations of very important things, just like Obama's task force, you've got these, these things that work, but they're not cookie cutter, right? And the things you do uh, in Milwaukee are going to be different than things you do in Wausau, different than you do in La Crosse, right? All over the place. And so the nice thing about what uh, wonderful thing that, that Lynette is describing is you've got that flexibility for local alders to take it, for county executives, county supervisors, um, mayors, police chiefs, to figure out how it works in, in uh, Jefferson County, how it works in Brown County. That's yeah, make it their own. Make it their own, make it their own. The other piece of this, which I, again, I know you're going to talk about again, but I'm so uh, thrilled to hear this, is just that importance of training, right? Uh, training, training, training from the start, from uh, along the way, the very day, the two days before you retire, after a, a, a good career as a law enforcement officer, continued focus on that, experiential training. Uh, the world changes also, as we're indicating here, even on what the law is. So officers need to know what is qualified immunity, what are, what are chokeholds all about, what are no-knock warrants. And so, again, I'm very proud of the fact the Department of Justice did a lot of that with MPD. That's got to continue. That's what the NACCP's proposal also incorporates and proposes. Absolutely. I think um, it's really key to point out that um, we are in complete agreement with training and, and it's almost like milking a cow. You never stop, right? You got to keep milking that cow every day. And so when it comes to being an officer in the community, you're introduced to new experiences and different scenarios. And you, 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 might, you might catch yourself off guard based on the all that we're asking you to do as police officers because they're, 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 they're doing amazing work for our community, but they're also, um, you know, human beings too. And so you, the buildup could be there. So the training would be required. A, a weird scenario happens, the training is going to be required. So continuing the training is going to be so important. But more importantly, with our plan, we thought that training is going to get us, uh, and it's not going to get us as much without community interaction. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, police officers don't have to live in the cities that they police. I believe there's a, a, a legislative change for that. 
And that was dangerous for, you know, from our vantage point, because when you don't have that connection to the people that you're policing, all as a police officer, all you see is the bad times, right. not the good times, not the kids going to school and talking about how great the officers are, you know, um, you just see people in need and in trauma and in drama. And so that becomes the way you perceive that community. So we're asking in our plan for more interaction with the community. We're going to work on changing legislation that allows them to live outside those areas or the communities that they're policing. We'll fix that. But today, we'd like to see a commitment to a community service, um, having all officers be required to give those hours back to the community so that they get the balanced perception of the people that they're policing. Right, right. And, you know, with the training thing, I hope that there's an emphasis, too, on implicit bias. You know, know thyself. Know what you're bringing into situations. I think that is so important. The other thing I want to talk about is the whole defunding, defunding police departments. You hear that thrown around. That means different things to different people. Um, I know that uh, Milwaukee is looking at what it would look like to take 10% from the police department and allocate it in different areas. What do you guys think about the whole idea of defunding? Or should there be another phrase that we use for that? That's always better marketing. I mean, that's why we have that industry, right? <laughs> $17 billion, gazillion dollar industry on branding. Uh, I think that's, I, I think it's a great, it's a step in the right direction from, from um, my vantage point. Not because I believe there should be no police. Police are an extremely important function, especially in a society uh, like ours. Uh, we need them. We can't get rid of them 100%. And nobody's trying to. I think that there's a misunderstanding of what defunding means. And I, I think a better word to answer your question might be reallocation mm-hmm. of funding, right? Um, so instead of relying on that department for so much, pulling away some of those services and reallocating those funds to uh, better address the needs of the community. If someone is having a mental breakdown, why is a guy with a gun being called to deal with that? And why is someone who has a gun, who has no training for that issue, being asked to deal with it? So being smarter about the policy that we engage and how we um, provide services or emergency services to the community. We can be smarter with technology and you know, um, we can get access to databases. Officers can know, or our infrastructure will know who is asking for this help. We have more important you know, um, information on those calls. So why don't we use that data to have smarter um, re- resolutions provided? And if we shift this funding over, maybe we can start bringing those um, solutions to the community that are better for the community, reestablishing trust with the community. We talk about all these points, things that could be done, things that should be explored. Are you guys hopeful that it will happen? I, I am I am extremely hopeful, um, not only because of the energy that we talked about in part one and the focus that is now part of our national fiber and our community and everything that we do and say these days. I'm also hopeful because, as I said before, I think there are the mechanisms to make things happen. 
Um, I do believe that there is a spirit of America that is uh, irrepressible, and I think that we're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, I also think, to Lynette's last point, that we can channel that enthusiasm and possibility about the future, you know, putting aside the specific language. I also like reallocation. I like words like reimaging and restructuring and revisioning and all those kinds of very positive rewords that are out there. So language is important. The substance is even more important. <laughs> And the other piece of this that I, I'm enthused about is the concept that we no longer just look as, at policing in a silo, that we recognize that some of the reallocation that was talking about is going to be, frankly, outside of the police community. It's going to be in education. It's going to be in healthcare. It's going to be in basic social services. It's going to be in transportation and business opportunities. And the, the concern that I have, even in the midst of this enthusiasm and excitement, is if we think we're going to check the box by doing all these wonderful policing things, we will not be successful. Why? Because we haven't addressed the whole panoply of things. Our issues in America are profound when it comes to policing, and our challenges are great, and our accomplishments are also great, but that's not ex exclusive focus. It's got to be a broad-based uh, attack on this. And to the extent that money is important, that reallocation, re-envisioning, re and re-imagining re, um, re policing has got to bring everybody to that table. That's a huge task, right? Um, but it's also a part of the enthusiasm that we can, we can tap into. The community has got to understand, as we always have had to understand, you know, that housing is related to healthcare, is related to jobs, is related to schooling, as related to family status, they're not stovepipe. So true of policing and all these other areas. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll add to that really quickly. You know, the, my hope is that, you know, we're finally seeing that the business model doesn't work for government. You know, we can't externalize. We, as uh, the people, as the government, have to account for every person's contribution or lack thereof, right? We don't have the ability to just throw people away and ignore them as participants in our society. The protesters are showing us this. We've known this intimately, but I think we've kind of gotten away from this. But now we're back. All people will have to contribute. Now, it may cost money, but you know, just as we've seen with the prison industrial complex, we are paying, especially in Wisconsin, 40, almost $40,000 a year to imprison a man. If, if we would look at the policy of that, it doesn't make sense. We're ready to spend the money, but we're not going to insist that that contribution, that individual becomes productive. Right, you know, yeah. The waste that, that spend, we have to stop thinking on those terms. Maybe we give that guy a $25,000 a year job to clean up his neighborhood or to um, you know, cut some shrubs we could be more creative. So just as we're talking about defunding uh, or reallocating funds from the police, this might be a movement to, for us to analyze how we can reallocate, reallocate funds that we've been putting in these other areas where we're thinking we're putting a problem away or externalizing an issue just to have it come back and, and be more of a problematic situation. Let's be smarter about how we're spending our money across the yeah, and create more productive citizens. Uh, yeah, you make a great everyone, point. Everyone can contribute to this great thing that we're calling America. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, guys, part two. We did it. 
Thank you so much for um, all of your insight. A great discussion. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, it, it's been good. And hopefully we can do it again sometime. So, you need part three. You need part I know. Three. You need part three. Maybe part two. Yeah, you guys will be regulars. So again, this is former U.S. attorney James Santel, uh, now in private practice, and attorney Lynette McNeely, and she is the chair of Legal Redress for the NAACP, Wisconsin State Conference of Branches. Again, thank you for your time, your conversation, your insight. Um, I re We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. Um, we have done many, many podcasts. We're in uh, season three. So if you'd like to see some of our previous podcasts, we invite you to do so. Go to YouTube. Uh, you can check us out there. Please subscribe. And of course, check us out on any of the platforms, podcast platforms that you like. We're probably there. Um, if you would like to contribute to um, our efforts to further community awareness, because we're tackling a lot of different topics, we invite you to go to our website, the411live.org. You could become a sponsor. That would be great. But until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk.